please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God. Good morning, family of God. Well, as Chauncey said a moment ago, we are in the third of five weeks studying the, what the Bible has to say about the church. The, the title for this sermon series is We Are the Church. Let's say it again. Everybody say, We Are the Church. Because we want to emphasize church is not a building. Church is not a once a week event or a two times or three times a week event that you attend. Church is the people of God. The people who are united with God and with one another by grace through Jesus Christ. We are the church. And this morning I want to give you a little peek behind the curtain of our sermon planning process. Chauncey's already excited about the sermon planning process. It's good to have somebody who's with you no matter what you say. You know what I'm saying? That's unity in the body of Christ. Here's the process. We mapped out a couple weeks ago a little bit what we wanted to talk about in this series. And my assignment here in week three was going to be to to talk about some of the biblical concepts for church structure. What does it mean that the church is both universal and local, invisible and visible? Talk about elders and deacons, that kind of stuff, just to clarify our thinking, which is important to do for a lot of reasons, including the fact that here at Christ Community Church, we have folks from a lot of different church backgrounds. Some of us came from the church background of no church. You just grew up, didn't know the Lord. Recently, you came to know Christ, and you come to church, but trying to figure out what church is. Others of us came from Baptist or Methodist or Catholic or uh, Pentecostal backgrounds, and we had different ideas about church. So it is helpful and important for us to get our thinking straight about what church is and what's the structure and how does it work. But as we prayed and discussed, we sensed that the Holy Spirit was leading us to go to a different direction today. And so instead, we're talking about this passage, Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 11. And the reason is this. We just sense that God was prompting us to think about the fact that if we have all of our ideas right about the church, all of our I's dotted and all of our T's crossed, but our hearts ain't right, it won't matter. On the other hand, if our hearts are right, 
then we can work through all the differences of our backgrounds. Amen? So it starts with the heart. And that we probably will come back at some point in the next year and talk about some of that other stuff. But we want to drill into the heart of the matter today. We want to talk about what kind of gospel-formed hearts do we, as the people of God, need to have if we're going to be church together in a healthy, Christ-honoring way. So that's the topic. You ready? Well, let me give you the situation of this passage of Scripture we're reading. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, and this is in many ways a healthy church. It's a mature church in many ways. It's a very missional church. For one thing, Paul spends very little time rebuking or correcting this church. Compare this to the Galatians or the Corinthians, right? Paul writes letters to those churches and spends more, most of the letter correcting their errors. But we get very little of that in Philippi. This is a healthy church. It's a mature church. Not only that, we know from reading Acts chapter 16, this was a church that was literally forged in the furnace of spiritual warfare and persecution. So from the beginning, anybody in Philippi who chose to trust in Christ counted the cost of discipleship. They saw Paul, the evangelist who planted this church, get beaten up and thrown in jail for the gospel. They saw demons cast out and then they saw uh, pagan leaders persecute the Christian community That was like week one of the church of Philippi. So these are people who know about suffering for Christ. And if we go read the first chapter of Philippians, we find Paul encouraging this church for many reasons. First of all, for their faithfulness that they persevered in the midst of difficulty and suffering and persecution. Second of all, for their missional commitment. They are working together to get the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. Isn't that beautiful? That's what we want to be like. Not only that, Paul encourages them because they loved him with a sacrificial love to send one of their own to visit Paul, who's in prison again, and to check on Paul. So this is a healthy and mature church. And yet it becomes clear as we read that one of Paul's significant concerns for this church is that in the midst of all of that, they're having some problems with the issue of unity. And their problems with the issue of unity really have to do with the heart. It's not so much about doctrinal differences. It's just they need to continue to do some works in their hearts. They're going to help them with their relationships. Now, I say this for several reasons. First of all, we wouldn't have this chapter on unity in chapter two if, if there wasn't a reason for it. Second of all, um, in chapter one, verse 27, which we'll look at later, Paul encourages them to keep working on having a unified witness for the gospel. Third of all, when we get to chapter four in this letter, Paul specifically addresses some interpersonal conflicts between um, some women in the church who were fighting and perhaps leading different factions in the church that weren't getting along together. So they're having some unity problems. And Paul says, church, you're doing a good job, but you need to work on unity. You need to fight for unity. So the big deal here is unity. Everybody say unity. Unity in Christ. Now, I, I, I think we could sum up what Paul says here with three statements. What is Paul about in Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 11? I'm just going to give this three statements to you on the front end, and then we'll unpack them for the rest of the sermon, okay? So if you're a note taker, you might want to jot these down. Statement number one in Paul's chain of reasoning here is this. If you enjoy a relationship with God, then express your love for God by working to build a unified, loving, healthy church. 
Let's say that again. If you enjoy a relationship with God, then express your love for God by working to build a unified, loving, healthy church. That's the first idea here. Let me paraphrase it a couple ways just to help make this point, because this is one of the really important ones today. The joy of knowing God should motivate Christians to serve one another and to care for the family of God. Or we could say it this way. Your commitment to personal spiritual growth needs to express itself in a commitment to building healthy local church life. In other words, our relationship with Jesus is deeply personal, but it isn't private. Our relationship with Jesus is personal, but it's not individualistic. It's about building a community together. You tracking with this point? Okay, we're going to talk about it some more. Here's the second second point in Paul's chain of reasoning. In order to be the kind of people who can even start to build a healthy church community, we must first have healthy hearts that look like the heart of Jesus. If we're going to build healthy community, we've got to have healthy hearts that look like the heart of Jesus. And here's the third chain of his reasoning. The way that we get healthy hearts is by continually remembering and thinking about and celebrating the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So that's the logic of the passage. Let me say a prayer for us real quick that the Holy Spirit will teach us this morning. And then we're going to dive into that in more detail. Bow your heads with me. Oh, Lord, I'm thankful for your servant, the Apostle Paul. I'm thankful, most of all, for the grace that you've given us in Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I'm thankful for this church family. Lord, as I think about the individuals in this room, I'm reminded of the church at Philippi. So many people in this room faithfully share the gospel, make disciples, work to bring your heart of love and compassion into our community, support global missions, and they do it sacrificially with joy week in and week out. I'm thankful for this church. I also know there's many people in this church who have persevered in their relationship with you through much difficulty. Thank you, God, for that grace. My prayer this morning is that your Holy Spirit would help us Because we know that one of the strategies of the enemy is that he wants to stop the gospel work you're doing through this church by causing us to fight with one another. He wants to fracture relationships. He's going to attack in that way over and over again. And so my prayer this morning is that if there's any of that stuff going on right now, your spirit would do a work of repentance and healing and reconciliation in our midst today. But beyond that, I want to pray that your spirit would do a work this morning to make us a people whose hearts are so formed by the gospel that when we face seasons of challenge and difficulty, we would keep fighting for unity and contending as one man for the faith of the gospel and that you'll get all the glory for that. Pray it in Jesus name and all God's people said, amen. Well, let's talk about this first point I mentioned. If you enjoy a relationship with God, then you need to express that relationship By building a unified, loving, healthy church. This comes from the first two verses of our text. Look with me again at verses 1 and 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, 
any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Verse one is assuming that this is a group of people who enjoys relationship with God. We could turn these if clauses into questions. And I'm going to ask these questions to you this morning. I need somebody to help me testify. You ready? Anybody have ever had a time in your life that you were tired or you were discouraged or you were feeling beat down by your own sin or by the sins of others? And the good news of Jesus Christ encouraged your heart. Good. Anybody ever had a moment in which you were in pain and you were grieving And God the Father in his love just reminded you of his unfailing love for you and your heart was comforted. Anybody in this room ever had the experience that you were praying or you were reading the Bible or you went to church or you were singing a song and the Holy Spirit of God moved your heart to worship and to trust the Lord and to love people in a way that you knew was supernatural? Anybody ever had the experience that before you came to know Christ, your heart wasn't very loving and compassionate and you still got a long way to go. But God has been changing your heart since there's some tenderness and compassion in your heart. Yes, yes. Well, that's what Paul is saying to this group. Look, you're experiencing all this. You're experiencing all that. I'm not talking to you based on abstract theological principles. I'm talking to you based on your lived experience. And so now I want to say to you what Paul says to the church. Friends, you just testified to God's grace in your life. You're experiencing relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, make my joy complete. Make God's joy complete. By saying that relationship with God is having such an effect on me that I'm going to do the work of verse 2. I'm going to fight for unity. Now, we got to pause here and say there may be some people in the room as we ask those questions You were hearing other people testify, but you thought, I've never experienced that. And here's the good news of the gospel of grace. Jesus loves sinners. God loves sinners. And as we're going to reflect on in just a moment, Jesus Christ, the son of God, died on the cross for sinners so that any of us, no matter how messed up we are today, can in our hearts believe Jesus is Lord. And we can confess that he raised, he, he rose again from the grave And we can be forgiven of our sins and begin to enter into that relationship with God. Let's ask some experienced people in here. Did anybody do anything to earn your relationship with God? It was just a gift of grace. And anybody can have it. You can get in on that. But what we want to see now is Paul is talking to Christians who are already experiencing that. And he says to them really four things he wants them to do. He uses four phrases in verse two, but three of them are just repeating the same thing in different ways. Look at the four things. Complete my joy by, one, being of the same mind. Two, having the same love. Three, being in full accord. And four, of one mind. Now, really, that's just two things. Because Paul says one thing in three different ways. Be of the same mind. Be in full accord. Be of one mind. That's, he's talking about unity of mind. So everybody say, unity of mind. And then he talks about, in, in, in the middle of that, having the same love. So let's talk about what that means. First of all, what does Paul mean when he says he wants Christian folks like us to be of the same mind in full accord and of one mind? First, let me say some things I think Paul doesn't mean. Okay? 
Paul does not mean that we lose our individual ability to think, study, and raise hard questions. We surrender our individual intellects to groupthink. That's a cult. That's not the church, right? So God gave you a brain. He wants you to use it. He wants you to ask questions. He wants you to think. Paul also does not mean that we lose our individual perspectives about God, life, and the world. As a matter of fact, it's a beautiful fact that everybody in here has experienced God's grace in unique ways. You have known God in ways that I haven't yet, and I want to learn from you. We need that diversity. I also don't think Paul means that we all have to have the same taste in music or the same political ideas or the same preferences. Y'all remember when Jared talked about preferences last week? That was good. We don't have to even agree about the exact way to interpret some of the difficult passages of the Bible to interpret. It's okay for us to have some diversity in some of those matters. But what Paul means, I think, is this. I think there's at least three things he has in mind. First, I think Paul is saying that he wants this local church to share a common commitment to the core central truths about God and salvation that are taught in the Bible. He wants them to be agreed on the main things and to keep the main things the main things. This is something that Paul emphasizes over and over again. Some of those main things are emphasized in this passage in verse 6 through 11 where Paul summarizes the gospel. But throughout the New Testament, We hear this teaching consistently that our unity is supposed to be unity in the truth, unity in the truth of God. And we could summarize some of the main things like this. Let me give you some words. Everybody say Trinity. Trinity means there's only one God, but God, the one God exists forever as three persons, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. We sung that a moment ago. Remember, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. That's a core truth of Scripture that we're united in. Another word that we could say is this word incarnation. Everybody say incarnation. Incarnation. That word is taught in our text, Philippians 2 today, and we're going to celebrate it at Christmas. But here's what we mean. The eternal son of God became flesh and lived among us. What was his name? His name was Jesus. Jesus reveals to us the heart of the father. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That's the third point we want to emphasize. Everybody say atonement. Atonement means that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He took our place on that cross. He bore our guilt, our shame, our sin, our death, so that we wouldn't have to. The fourth word is the word resurrection. Everybody say resurrection. We say this word referring first to the fact that Jesus rose bodily from the grave, and second to the fact that when Jesus returns, everybody who trusts in him will rise from the grave to live with him in the new creation forever. Here's a fifth word. Everybody say salvation. The word salvation is a big Bible word, and the Bible teaches that we're saved by grace. In other words, Christianity is not about being a good person so that God will like you or being a good person so you can go to heaven. By grace, God loves sinners. By grace, Jesus gave his life for sinners so that any of us can simply trust in Christ, will be forgiven, will be brought into God's family. Those are the core things that unite us. Now, is that is that enough to base a life on? Is that enough to base a church on? Now, I'm not trying to say we shouldn't talk about anything else. Some of y'all that know me for a while, you know, I got opinions about a whole lot of stuff besides that stuff. And we should talk about other stuff. We should talk about difficult, controversial aspects of biblical truth. But the point I'm trying to make here, and I think Paul is making a similar point here and elsewhere, is if these core things unite us, we can find a whole lot that unites us that allows us to move forward together, even while we're having a disagreement. Amen. All right. Here's the second point. 
in addition to sharing a common commitment to core central truths about the Bible, I think unity of mind is really talking about the fact that we share a missional mindset. We share a missional mindset, meaning in our thinking, we know that Christ Community Church is not about Christ Community Church. Moreover, if we went around to any local church on the planet, if it's biblically oriented, that local church is not about that local church. Friends, we're going to have forever to enjoy God in the new creation. In the meantime, we're here for a mission. We're here for a purpose. If you've got your Bible, flip back to Philippians chapter 1 for a second. And look with me at verse 27. I mentioned this verse a moment ago, but listen to what Paul says. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You've heard the good news of Jesus. Now let your lifestyle reflect the Jesus whom you've heard about. And what does he have in mind as we continue reading? He says this, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, you might circle that word striving if you got your Bible. Everybody say striving. He says this, you guys, your, your, your church is there to do work, to strive. And the work that you're called to do is gospel work. So what I mean when I say Christ Community Church doesn't exist for Christ Community Church is this. Our church body, our church family is also a church army called by God to fight for the salvation of souls, to fight for discipleship and gospel transformation in the lives of one another and in the lives of people in our community, to fight for God's purposes of peace and righteousness, to triumph in our neighborhoods instead of evil, and to fight for the task of global evangelization. It's not just about us, it's about mission. So one of the things that happens in church life, if we lose that missional focus, then we become very inwardly focused and we start arguing with each other about stuff that's not as important. So we need to be unified in core doctrines, unified in our minds, but we also need to be unified with the missional mindset. I'm pointing into my head over and over throughout this sermon because Paul's saying, get your thinking straight. Let the main truths be the main truths. And get the missional focus united here. Listen, Christ Community Church. If you turn to the back of your bulletin, you got a community mission in there. I think it's usually in there. Is it in there today? It's not in there today. That's convenient. I should have double-checked that. Most weeks, in the back of your bulletin, there's a community mission. And it says that we, as a church family, are doing four things. We're committed to, to glorify Jesus by evangelizing our community and beyond. By training disciples who are mature and filled with the spirit and the word of God by fighting to bring God's heart of love and mercy and justice and reconciliation to our communities and by sending teams to do that among the nations. We're, we're wanting to glorify Jesus in those things. And that plays out in lots of specific ways. Now, we cannot do everything. No local church can do everything. But we can be united on some stuff that we are doing. And there's stuff that we're doing together, like going out to apartment complexes week after week after week to share the gospel. And I'm looking around the room and I see people who came to know Christ in those apartment complexes, like going out into schools 
Chauncey is doing some exciting work. We need to get an update from him about our school's ministry team. We got reading buddies serving in the schools. Chauncey's doing work right now to lay the foundation for some evangelistic and discipleship groups going into public schools in our community. We got a partnership with St. Paul's Community School. These are meaningful missional engagements. And Paul is saying, church in Philippi, I'm glad you have a personal relationship with Jesus. If you do, fight not only to have a personal relationship with Jesus, but to be a community that's united in mission so that the gospel can get out to everybody else as well. That's what he's calling him to do. There's a third aspect of unity of mind, which really comes down to this simple point. Church, we don't let personal preferences or interpersonal conflicts distract us from our call to love God, love each other and do the will of God together. Now, if you got your Bible, flip now to chapter four of Philippians. I mentioned this verse a second ago, but I'm going to read you actually two verses, verse two and three. Here's what Paul says at the end of his verse, which gives him a clue to what's gives us a clue rather to what's going on in Philippi. He says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So we don't know a lot about this situation, which is kind of helpful because we can apply it to any conflict situation we're dealing with. But Euodia and Syntyche are two women that Paul names by name. And he calls them or he refers to them as people who contended with him side by side for the gospel. He respects these women. These women are leaders in their own right. They're spiritual warriors in the gospel. They're committed to the work of the ministry. The only problem is they fighting about something. They can't get along. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's something small. Maybe it's even something missional. Maybe Euodia thinks we need to focus our energy on the new prayer group we started. And Sintiki says, no, we got to care for the orphans and the widows. Could be. Maybe Euodia wants to plant a new church and Sintiki says we need to focus on discipleship in our congregation. It could be that they both have good hearts, but they have different emphases. We don't know what it is. But notice, Paul does not tell them which one is right. Paul also does not say, find a 50-50 compromise. What Paul is saying is, for the sake of the gospel, work it out. For the sake of the gospel, find a way to agree together in the Lord, because there's a lot more at stake than your preferences. Now, Christ Community Church, church family, let's think about this for a second. In my prayer... A minute ago, I was talking to Jesus about how I like you guys as a church family. I really do. I said it to Jesus, but let me say it to y'all. I like you guys. And not only that, I was talking to the Lord a minute ago about how this church reminds me of the church in Philippi. Because uh, if anybody hangs around Christ Community Church for a couple of years, it's because you're committed to mission. Otherwise, you would leave. There's a place that's easier that you could go. It's the, the mission God has called us to do is hard. So anybody who stays a part of this church, it's because you want to work and you want to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel together. And I respect that about you. Now, let me ask this question. Are we immune to being distracted by interpersonal conflict? No. Is this something that could creep up in our midst? Let's even ask this question. Since Paul says we are not ignorant of the devil's schemes, do you think it might be one of Satan's main strategies? Because he hates people that we're supposed to share the gospel with five years from now. 
that he wants to slow down that work or stop that work by stirring up divisions among us. Yeah, I'll say it is. And it could be because friends are hurting each other's feelings. It could be because someone in leadership lets a careless word out that hurts somebody's feelings. It could be because we have differences about what we should focus on. And we can't know in advance what the solution is. But we can hear this gospel exhortation. Church, for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of the mission of God, work it out. So everybody say, work it out. And then Paul says, have unity of mind, but also have unity of love. That means be united in your shared love for God and be united by loving one another in a way that reflects God's love for you. Now, this moves me on to the other points. I am have to go real quick through these because I lingered here on the first one. But Paul says not only that our interpersonal or excuse me, that our personal relationship with Jesus needs to be expressed in interpersonal commitment to doing the work to build a unified, healthy church. He also teaches us that if we're going to build that kind of church, we need to be people with healthy hearts. So look with me at verses three and four. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility Count others more significant than yourselves. We could sum that up with one word. Everybody say humility. If we're going to be a unified church, we have to be people with humble hearts. Look at verse four. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We could sum that up with the word love. Everybody say love. Love involves valuing the other person. So much that you're committed to their good and it's going to be your joy to pursue their good, even if it's costly for you. That's how God loved us in Jesus Christ, right? He valued us. He treasured us so much that he was committed to our good, to our joy, to our holiness, to our eternal life. And it was his joy to pursue that, even though it cost Jesus Christ his life. Humility and love. Verse six Excuse me, verse 5 is crucial. Where do you get a heart of humility and love? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The title of this sermon is The Mind of Christ, coming from this verse. And here's the key point I want you to get right now, and for everything else I'm about to say. What Paul is saying is in verse 5 is this. If you're going to be a unified church, your mindset Your attitude, your heart needs to be like the mindset, the attitude and the heart of Jesus. That's a simple statement. No amount of community groups or conflict resolution strategies or principles of interpersonal relationship or training on spiritual gifts or any of that stuff can make a church a united church if we don't have hearts that are like the heart of Jesus. Now, how do we get those hearts? It's amazing that in verse five, Paul moves from you got to have healthy hearts and then transitions to look at how awesome the gospel is. So the final point I want to make for the last few minutes is this. We get healthy hearts by constantly meditating on what Jesus has done for us. Just read with me. Verses 5 through 11. This is glorious. This is one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. Verses 6 through 11 is probably a hymn that the early church would sing together. 
And listen to what he said. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. This is awesome, guys. Here's what Paul is saying. You got to have the heart. You got to have the mind of Jesus. You've got to have the humility and the love of Jesus. And if you want to know what humility and love look like, just look at the story of the gospel. He says he was in the form of God and he took the form of a servant. I was trying to find a way to illustrate this. Can you visualize a silly illustration with me? Okay, this is kind of weak. Don't judge your pastor. Okay, I prayed. I tried. The Holy Spirit can use my weak illustration. I just want you to imagine a supernatural tape measure, okay? I lost you already, huh? (laughs) Okay, just imagine a regular tape measure. How about that? (laughs) But instead of measuring measuring inches, it measures glory. Now, I want you to ask, just pretend it measures inches if that helps, and we'll we'll work on it later. But here's what I want you to do. You take one end of the tape measure up, and where you put it is the throne of God in heaven. Okay? So picture the throne of God as we see it described, for example, in the book of Revelation, as we sung about it a moment ago when we sung, holy, holy, holy. There's angels surrounding the throne of God. And they are covering their faces. The seraphim, because they cannot look at the brightness of the beauty of the grandeur of God, not because they're sinful. They're not sinful. They're holy angels, but they're creatures. And they can't bear to gaze on the beauty and the glory of God. And yet they're crying out night and day. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. If you put your tape measure at that throne room, that's where the son of God eternally is. He is the form of God. And then you take it and you stretch it all the way down to a horse trough in Bethlehem. Look, look what the verses say. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of servant, by being born in the likeness of man. He says the distance to which God's humility and love will go is the distance from the throne room of the Holy Trinity to the manger in Bethlehem. You're going to need a big tape measure, folks. You're going to need a tape measure big enough to cross the chasm between infinite and finite. The eternal, omnipotent, holy, all-knowing Son of God, before whom angels fall down in worship, before whom all the hosts of hell tremble, came and clothed himself in the weakness of a mortal, vulnerable human baby. That's a lot of humility, but that's not where he stopped. You got to stretch the tape measure a little bit further because look what the next verse says. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Here's what Paul is saying. Jesus downward 
trek of humility and love didn't stop at the manger. All throughout his life, Jesus humbly served people. He healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He humbly taught simple, uneducated people the word of God. He touched lepers. He clothed himself like a servant and washed the disciples' feet. And then he went all the way to the cross. This is the most humiliating, shameful way you could die. Beaten to a pulp, hung up, probably hung naked, to die an agonizing, slow death in front of mockers. As a shamed criminal, why did he do that? He did that, saints, because he loves you and he loves me. He did that because we have rebelled against God and we deserve judgment and alienation from God. But he loves us and he wants us to enjoy God forever. He went all the way to the cross. And then the text says that's not the end of the story. Because God the Father brought him back. Everybody say Jesus is alive. And raised him from the dead and raised him all the way up to the right hand of the Father. Right now he sits on a throne. And not only that, but he sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in the hearts of every believer. That Jesus lives in the minds and the hearts of every Christian by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what Paul is saying is this. If you want to be united with one another, here's all you got to do. Jesus lives in you. Yield to the Holy Spirit of God. Meditate on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about how far God was willing to go to save you. Meditate on that until your heart is warmed and stirred to worship God. And you're crying out, Jesus, I love you more than anything. I'll do anything for you. And then what Jesus will say is this. Make my joy complete by loving one another. Make my joy complete by fighting for unity. If we have gospel-formed hearts, we're going to be humble and loving enough to listen to one another, aren't we? If we have gospel-formed hearts, we'll be humble enough and loving enough to pray and discern and to have hard conversations until we work it through and not to give up. If we have gospel-formed hearts, then we're going to be willing to set aside our preferences for the good of our brothers and sisters, and for the sake of the mission. Well, right now, we're about to go to the Lord's Supper. And saints, as we go to the Lord's Supper, here's my prayer. I'm praying that this reminder of the depth of the humility and love of God himself, of the body that was broken, of the blood that was spilt, will so encourage and refresh our hearts that it will become our joy to sacrificially love one another and fight for unity just like Jesus fought for us. Bow your heads with me and let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you. We thank you. We cannot say thank you enough. And Lord... The reality is that though we've heard this message, I know from experience that I and we are quick to forget. Sometimes our hearts are hard and our minds are stubborn. We need your Holy Spirit. But you said to us in your word that you gave the Holy Spirit so that we can understand the things that are freely given us by God. So I want to pray even now as we meditate on your word and as we go to the Lord's Supper. Would you, by the power of your spirit, do a work in us 
that this gospel that we've heard would penetrate down to the core of who we are. So that the humility and the love of Jesus would dwell in our hearts and we would be a people who fight for unity and who welcome one another and who love each other steadfastly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.